Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu. With me in studio are Wisani Mat. Kubela, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. South African President Jacob Zuma begins his state visit to Senegal and Cameroonians await parliamentary election results. In economics news, African pharmaceutical sector expected to grow and in sports news, South African under-19 cricket team takes on India. But first the news with Wisani Makubele. Good morning. Somalia's Al-Shabaab Islamists say no women joined them in an attack on Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, dismissing speculation that Samantha Luth Wade took part in the massacre. Al-Shabaab took to Twitter yesterday, reiterating it had a policy of not employing sisters for such missions. The group also says the Kenyan government is still chasing its tail by holding on to the hopeless notion that a woman led the attack. Luth Waite, a 29-year-old Muslim convert, was married to Jermaine Lindsay, one of four suicide bombers who attacked the London Transport Network in July 2005, killing 52 people. Interpol issued a red notice arrest warrant for Luth Waite on charges of possession, possessing explosives and conspiracy to commit a felony dating back to December 2011. Mali's president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, is expected to cut his visit to France short amid renewed fighting between insurgents and the military in his country. An official traveling with him says he will meet French President François Hollande today as scheduled, but will then return home, shortening his trip by two days. Insurgents launched an attack on the Malian army in the rebel bastion of Kidal yesterday in fresh violence since the breakdown of peace talks. A senior Malian army officer says the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad, which is fighting for autonomy in northern Mali, ambushed soldiers at a bank, the scene of a fierce firefight on Sunday night. Four suicide bombers blew up their Qaeda military barracks in the desert city of Timbuktu on Saturday, killing two civilians and attacked an attack claimed by al-Qaeda in the region. Egypt continues its crackdown Muslim Brotherhood members, sentencing one of its leaders to 10 years in jail. Political opponents are not the only ones being arrested. Lawyers and journalists are also being targeted. Mel Fregbeck reports. 
On Monday, Egypt's Suez military court sentenced Muslim Brotherhood leader Mohamed Mongay to 10 years of imprisonment on charges of inciting violence and vandalizing military property in August. Meanwhile, Monday's death toll in the Sinai rose to six after an Egyptian soldier was shot dead by armed militants on the main airport road in southern El Arish. Security sources said the officer was shot while looking out from an armored vehicle patrolling the airport road. European Union observers says Guinea's long-delayed elections passed calmly but were met by organizational problems and flawed voting lists. Voters turned out on Saturday after months of political haggling and violent protests for the legislative poll touted as the completion of the country's transition to democracy after a 2008 coup. Opposition groups had accused the government of trying to rig the vote by leaving people off voting lists in their strongholds and duplicating names in government areas, allegations dismissed by supporters of President Alpha Condon. Political parties agreed to delay the poll for four days to let the Independent National Electoral Commission to make changes to the voting registry. Head of the United Nations Development Programme, Helen Tlak, says the Syrian crisis will have a deep and long-lasting impact on the development prospects of the country and its neighbours. She was addressing a high-level meeting of the UN Refugee Agency in Geneva yesterday. Tlak says the conflict has seriously affected trade, agriculture, tourism and employment across the region. She says humanitarian and development efforts should, be, should not be seen as being in competition, but rather as essential and complementary. Obviously, life-saving humanitarian assistance for refugees and displaced peoples is vital, but it needs to be accompanied now by targeted, scaled-up, rapid development support, both to enhance the effectiveness of humanitarian relief and to ensure longer-term improvements in livelihoods and services, not least electricity, water and sanitation, health and education. And that's the news for now. Back to Lulu Gabo with Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka Na Unai. Thank you, Isani. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Cameroonians are expected expecting the results of a Central African Nations Council and parliamentary elections that were held yesterday. More than 5 million voters, including the country's President Paul Bia, took part in the elections to vote for their representatives in the council's 180-member parliament and 360 council areas. It is widely believed that President Paul Bia's party will win with a landslide margin. Our correspondent in Yawunde, Moki Kinzaga reports. Reports from all over Cameroon say for the first time in such an election in the history of the country, there was peace and serenity as millions of people went out to vote. One of the voters in Yaoundi, Sylvian Anzama, told Channel Africa that she was proud of exercising her civic duty. Ça 
She says it passed on very well because there were few people. She adds that she did not succeed to collect her voter's card, but when she went there with some colleagues, they were welcomed and their names were verified. Their cards were also handed to them, and then they voted for the council and later the parliamentary elections. She adds that she even had indelible ink on her fingers as a sign that she had voted and that she is very proud of it. Également pour ne pas revenir après je fais cet exercice. Moi je suis très fière. Some 7000 people with disabilities also voted and for the first time there were people at special polling stations to attend to them. Some Lingam, a Cameroonian in his mid 30s who lost his sight at the age of 10, says he and his disabled friends were very happy. When I got to the polling station, people who were assigned there to assist us, help me in choosing the ballot papers that I wanted, put into the envelope, and they told me, okay, you've put what you wanted, and they helped me to put my fingerprints and to sign under my picture. So those are some practical measures that were taken for persons with disabilities, particularly for visually impaired. And now there were other measures taken for those who are on wheelchairs, because if the, the tables are high, they will not be able to sign easily, so they brought some tables which were lower. Didn't you have an impression somewhere that they may have maybe taken a wrong ballot paper? Did you have his confidence? It's true that you can easily be uh, misled if the person helping you is for a given political party, but we trust those who are working there because it is not somebody from, let's say, a political party who come and guide you. And the law even authorizes that you can come with your people. But I went there not with my people, knowing that I will go and find people from the election body, ELECAM, who are normally supposed to be without any support for a given political party. And when you've voted, you now have the possibility to cross-check because you go back with the other papers that you, you left with, so you can cross-check whether you've been deceived or not. After voting in Yaoundé, Cameroon's president, who is also chairman of the ruling party in the country, the Cameroon People's Democratic Movement, called on all to accept the verdict of the polls. The elections are in time for the process democratic. He says elections like this one are historic moments in democratic processes because it is during such occasions that the people choose those who represent them and in the case of Cameroon at the council and national assembly levels this time. He adds that he feels happy. Campaigns were carried out in a serene atmosphere that is and adds that his wish is that this state of comprehension should continue throughout the process and that everybody will accept the verdict of the ballot. when the results are known, everyone accepts the verdict In an interview granted media organs after voting, he also assured Cameroonians that he will put in place other democratic institutions as provided for by the constitution. Notre democracy gagne en maturité. Les dernières élections sénatoriales. He says his country's democracy is getting matured. 
the last presidential election was simply impeccable. He says he only regrets that the media did not give it enough attention and asked that they are progressing and thereafter, that is after the council and parliamentary elections, he will put in place the constitutional council and Cameroon's democratic edifices will be complete. He ends by saying that he is inviting all Cameroonians to be part of the process. L'édifice démocratique du Cameroun sera ainsi achevé et j'invite tous les Camerounais à y participer. According to Cameroon's electoral laws, the results will be assembled at each polling station and forwarded to the communal office, then to the divisional office and finally to election bodies national office that compiles them and hand over to the Supreme Court sitting as constitutional council for proclamation. This may take several weeks. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. It's 12 minutes after 8 Central African time. On to our next story. South Africa sees Senegal as an important ally in the championing of pan-Africanism and finding solutions to African problems. This is according to International Relations and Cooperations Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabane ahead of South Africa's first ever state visit to Senegal. President Jacob Zuma has arrived in Dakar this morning on a two-day visit to the West African country. He is accompanied by seven cabinet ministers and over 25 business people. Our presidential correspondent in Debo Mugobo is there and filed this report. Although full diplomatic relations between South Africa and Senegal were established in 1994 following Pretoria's democratization process, the formal structure of these relations was the launching of the Joint Commission of Bilateral Cooperation in 2008. The Commission adopted a program of action that covered trade and industry, minerals and energy, defense and transport, among others. Speaking ahead of this visit, International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabani said Senegal is South Africa's key partner in finding solutions to the many challenges facing the continent. Senegal is a very, very important ally, both at the political, economic, cultural, but also on pan-Africanism. You'd remember that this self-reliance of Africans and finding solutions for African problems also started in yesteryears when we were establishing NEPAD. It took Senegal and South Africa and three other countries to finally agree that our socio-economic development agenda engaging with the international community will be a new partnership for Africa's development. Minister Nkwana Mashabane also said Africa is on the rise and in line with this it should take charge of its own mineral resources for the benefit of the continent's one billion people. Africa is the second fastest growing region, but what we are calling for all of us is that this growth has to be in our own terms. All these pots in our respective member states shouldn't be leading to extraction of our mineral resources somewhere, but it should be about beneficiation internally. So we see Senegal as one of those locomotives that's going to take this train of African renaissance in the true sense of the way and pan-Africanism forward. In addressing the second session of the Joint Commission of Bilateral Cooperation between the two nations, Senegalese Minister of Foreign Affairs Manki and Dai said they are working hard at ministerial level to take their relations to higher levels. 
the ambitions of both presidents is to ensure that there is a model between Senegal and South Africa in the field of cooperation. That is the reason why we are working hard to ensure that we strengthen the cooperation between the two countries. My sister and myself have been instructed to work hand in hand. We have been in contact permanently. We have worked together on several issues and we met several times on international meetings and we have similar positions or stands on several issues and I think this is a big breakthrough. And to give meaning to trade and investment between the two countries, dozens of South African business people accompanying the president will interact with their Senegalese counterparts to further strengthen their relations. Ntebu Mokobo Sitaka in Senegal. Kenyan Parliament's Defence Committee members have visited Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, the site of last week's terrorist attack, which left more than 60 people dead and scores of others seriously injured. The committee's visit was aimed at assessing the extent of damage caused to the mall before opening a probe into reports that top government officials failed to take action after being warned a year ago that the attack was in the offing. Our Nairobi correspondent James Shemanyu reports. As Kenyans eagerly wait for a comprehensive report by a special parliamentary committee probing the deadly terrorist attack on Nairobi's Westgate Mall, shops in the vicinity have reopened. I was right there to capture resumption of business. Business is back to normal here at one of Nairobi supermarkets called Nakumat. I'm right inside here and the punching of the machine and sales are continuing smoothly. There is what you can characterize as a small crowd compared to the usual days when we have people flocking here in uh, hundreds. But on another wing of the shop dealing with the groceries, people entered in droves as saleswoman Veronica Osundo explains. We are seeing many people coming, but at this time we are seeing different people from different countries coming into this supermarket of Nakomat. As the groceries section remains busy, other sections selling non-food items had no customers. Flashing back to past years, Regan Ocheng, in charge of one of the sections, had this to say. Over the years, been seeing a lot of customers, and uh, the shop has been full. It used to be full, but now there's a drop in the number of customers. From one of the supermarkets, I walked about 100 meters and watched as business people entered Westgate, the scene of last week's gunfire and explosions when security forces engaged Al-Shabaab terrorists. Maurice Mukesh uttered 10 words that sounded like a rebirth of his salad processing business. It's very sad. We are ready to start again the business. Amir Khan Savani, a bookseller, reminded me of the huge fire that engulfed three floors of the shopping mall and decried heavy losses. We cleared as much as we could. Now we're going to go every day and clear our stock out as much as we can. The lot of damages. Reading faces of the business people that entered the damaged mall, it was clear that they mentally asked themselves if Kenyan authorities will 
answer many unanswered questions such as whether or not there was a security lapse within the country's intelligence network that paved the way for the terrorists to attack. The issue of unanswered questions was highlighted by the sad-looking wholesale businessman Johnny Mushiri. As stakeholders in the mall, we do have very, very many questions. We also do not have adequate access and understanding of the events that went through that mall over the last 10 days or so. Then a car pulled up and out came Kenya's Trade Minister Phyllis Kandie. At an impromptu press conference, Kandie gave a government assurance to hundreds of business people gathered at the mall. I'm here to confirm that the government will give them support and we will work with them until their businesses are back to normal. What I saw up there is despicable. The minister was referring to extensive damage that Westgate Shopping Mall had suffered. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyulov. Human Rights Watch has called the attack on a Nairobi shopping mall that killed at least 61 people and wounded hundreds a horrendous act for which those responsible should be fully prosecuted. It has also asked that Kenyan authorities take all necessary measures to protect vulnerable communities from potential retaliation. Since October 2011, when Kenyan military forces deployed in Somalia, Kenya has experienced dozens of attacks by unidentified identified people involving shootings, grenades and other explosives. More than 100 people have been killed and hundreds injured. Leticia Beda is a researcher from the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch. Well, I mean, first of all, once again, you know, the victims of this attack deserve to receive justice. And so what we are saying is that the Kenyan authorities need to both in their immediate response and in their efforts to basically, you know, investigate and lawfully prosecute this particular attack. But more generally, they need to be making sure that they are reaching out to communities, all communities, in order to gather as much information as possible, but also at the same time in order to make sure that they are not arbitrarily targeting certain groups of the population and antagonizing and and abusing certain groups of the population. Um, So, you know, what we have been calling for for some time is obviously a significant reform of the police in Kenya. And this is obviously, in in many ways, a very critical time and a key moment to, to be doing this. We know that since Kenyan military forces were deployed in Somalia, Kenya has experienced a lot of attacks by unidentified people involving shootings, grenades and bombings and so on. Human Rights Watch has said that Kenyan security forces have in the past responded to these attacks for which they blame Somalis living in Kenya with widespread abuse. Can you just give us a few examples of the sort of thing taking place? Well, since the Kenyan forces went into Somalia in October 2011, we have actually documented on numerous occasions and in different parts of the country, primarily in the country's northeastern provinces, which are primarily inhabited by ethnic Somalis, Kenyan Somalis, and and also obviously there is a large Dadaab refugee camp where the Somali refugee population is, is also based. And so we've documented a range of abuses both by the police forces but also by the military forces in different parts of the country. 
More recently, we actually documented over 10 weeks of terror by the police forces, so different groups within the police forces in Eastleys. In Eastley, which is basically a predominantly ethnic Somali part of the town, and where in response to grenade attacks by unknown assailants, that the police basically went about for 10 weeks carrying out all sorts of abuses against the population there, and primarily against Somali refugees, and these included beatings, these included arbitrary arrest, extortion, as well as rape. And so this is in part why we are calling on the authorities both right now at the beginning of their investigations to send out very clear messaging, both to the population, but in particular to their forces, that that the forces need to respond in a lawful manner and cannot target or contribute to reprisals against this very vulnerable section of the population. Do you think that the military and the police assume that these attacks were carried out by Al-Shabaab and then think maybe there is a possibility that Al-Shabaab could be found in the Somali communities? It's very difficult to say. I mean, that the, the workings of al-Shabaab, as we've seen in some ways in the last few days, that very few people know a lot about how al-Shabaab works, how they recruit. What we have obviously focused on, and I think it's very important to constantly recall, is that Somalis in Somalia have been the main victims of abuses by al-Shabaab. And in fact, a lot of the Somali refugees who are now in Kenya are actually here because they were fleeing as a result of al-Shabaab abuses. And we've documented all sorts of abuses ever since al-Shabaab began to control large sections of Somalia. So I think it's a very difficult question to answer. I think it is very difficult in many ways. But what we're saying once again is that this is why there is a need for a, a thorough and a lawful investigation, but also, you know, credible investigation carried out by the authorities to try to really understand, you know, the reality behind this. And have incidents of police brutality against Somali refugees or, or Kenya Somali communities ever been investigated when such attacks happen? Now, I mean, for the last two years, we've obviously documenting a lot of, of responses in, in part linked to the Kenyan presence in Somalia. But the truth is, over the years, again and again, we have been documenting abuses against Kenyan Somalis and Somali refugees. We have regularly called on the government to carry out independent investigations. Unfortunately, time and again, even when some form of commission or investigations have been set up by the government, now most recently in 2011, directly in, in, in response to, to one of the reports we were p- putting out around abuses in northeastern province, that the military had actually set up a commission. But once again, the findings of these commissions are never made public, and more often than not, that the commissions are disbanded halfway through their work. And so we, to date, have still not seen any credible investigations into these abuses carried out by the government, and which would be key also to send a very clear message that you know all victims of abuses in, in this country are equal victims. 
That was Letitia Bader, researcher with the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to Khusiko Dingake. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, and it is 8.26 Central African time. Ministers from 11 countries meeting on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly have adopted a declaration on ending violence and discrimination against individuals based on their sexual orientation and gender identity. The declaration says lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people, LGBTs, must enjoy the same human rights as everyone else. Diane Penn reports. The meeting brought together foreign ministers from Argentina, Brazil, Croatia, El Salvador, France, Israel, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway and the United States, as well as their counterpart from the European Union. UN Human Rights High Commissioner Navi Pillay described it as groundbreaking and unprecedented. This is historic. They all said it was historic. It's never happened at the UN before. Civil society has been struggling with these issues and finally it's reached the UN. Following the study that was done before the Human Rights Council, then this is a development that I hope to encourage and see other countries also joining. The study the High Commissioner mentioned was carried out by her office in 2011 and drew on nearly 20 years of UN work on human rights. It found a deeply disturbing pattern of violence and discriminatory laws and practices affecting people on the basis of their sexual orientation and gender identity. Jessica Stern, executive director of the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, says discrimination and violence against the LGBT community occurs in every country worldwide. Not a day goes by where we don't receive communication from you know, community members in every country in the world reporting arbitrary arrest, forced marriage, discrimination in employment, difficulty even completing school because of harassment by teachers and other students. If there's a challenge that LGBT people can experience, it happens. I think some of the most worrisome issues that we hear about are physical and sexual violence, but they're by no means the only issues. This July, the UN Human Rights Office launched a public education campaign called Free and Equal, aimed at promoting greater respect for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Jessica Stern is optimistic that this will come naturally to future generations. The youth are always a little bit ahead of the rest of us, right? And so the truth is there are many LGBT youth around the world who have straight friends, who've come out to them. Their straight friends just don't care. It's just one more facet of their friends' identities. And that's really important because it shows sociocultural change. It shows the influence of outreach and education. It shows the influence of comprehensive sexuality education in the schools. And I think what it means in terms of LGBT youth themselves is that they have a broader network of support so that when they find themselves in crisis, they have people to turn to. The UN Human Rights Office says for all the difficulties in bringing an end to discrimination against LGBT people, this is still a time of hope as more countries are recognizing the severity of the problem and the need to take action. Diane Penn, United Nations. We're Sani Makubela standing by with our headlines. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. 
Somalia's Al-Shabaab Islamists say no women joined them in an attack on Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, dismissing speculation that Samantha Luthwaite took part in the massacre. Nigeria takes measures to improve security around schools, including stepping up patrols and putting armed soldiers outside them and guarding school buses following the killings of 40 college students at their dormitory. And European Union observers say Guinea's long-delayed elections passed calmly but were marred by organizational problems and flawed voting lists. A full update in 30 minutes. Thank you, Isani. South Africa has announced a contribution of about 290 US dollars to the United Nations World Food Program to assist displaced people facing food insecurity in the Democratic Republic of Congo. These funds will enable the humanitarian organization to provide food assistance to displaced families. Some 2.6 million people are currently displaced in the DRC, mostly in the east of the country. WFP plans to give over of 400 US dollars worth of food assistance to vulnerable people in the DRC between this year and 2015. More from David Orr, spokesperson at the World Food Programme in Southern Africa. This is a fairly significant contribution from South Africa to alleviate the plight of food insecure people, particularly displaced people in the DRC. These funds will help us to assist about 60,000 people for one month. Now, that may not seem a lot, but, you know, it is really quite significant given the extent of need in the DRC and also given our funding situation. So we're extremely grateful for this contribution to our operations in the DRC. How timely this donation is considering that uh, about 2.6 million people are currently displaced there in the DRC? That's right. Those are the estimates, about 2.6 million people. We are helping as, as many as about 4 million people in the country as a whole. Of course, most of these people and most of the displaced are in the eastern provinces and most of them have been driven away from their homes by fighting and we have seen a recent upsurge in this conflict in particularly in the east in recent months this money will help us assist those people who are literally driven out of their homes with very little just what they're able to carry some of them end up in camps some of them are staying with host families as you know it's an appalling situation in much of the country now, this contribution um, is similar to the one that South Africa made to WFP back in 2009. But then at that time, uh, South Africa had given 1.3 million rents to the DRC. How did those funds then help? It would have been used to support various humanitarian projects. The current contributions will be used by uh, food commodities to help these people who are displaced. We, we've got many operations right across the DRC. Perhaps our biggest is aimed at uh, those who are internally displaced and also also for refugees who've crossed in over borders from countries like the Central African Republic. We provide food for these people in the camps so that they have a means of sustaining themselves. That was David Orr, spokesperson at the World Food Programme in Southern Africa, talking to Komutso Mopulane. A 2.1 million Syrian refugees 
are now living outside their country and more than 4 million are displaced inside Syria, according to the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. Syria's neighbors, including Egypt, have been trying to cope with the influx, but they are now stretched to the limit. At its annual governing executive committee on Monday, UNHCR set aside two days to discuss international solidarity and burden sharing. Jocelyn Sambira reports. A humanitarian crisis has gripped the region because of the persistent and unrelenting influx of Syrian refugees into neighboring countries such as Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, and Turkey. This has put a strain on their already limited resources. These four countries, including Egypt, are hosting over 2 million refugees. Hundreds of delegates, including government ministers from the neighboring and host countries, are currently in Geneva to attend the annual UNHCR Governing Executive Committee. While the committee meets every year to set the agency's budgets and programs, it has set aside a special session on Syria. Iraq is one of the host countries trying to cope with the influx. Hoshaya Zebari is the Minister for Foreign Affairs in Syria. The arrival of more than 240,000 Syrian refugees as of mid-September 2013, predominantly to the Kurdish region of Iraq, represent an additional burden on challenges for the Kurdish regional government and the federal governments of Iraq to cope with the influx of refugees with limited resources, while protecting the socio-economic and security progress in the country. UN High Commissioner for Refugees Antonio Guterres decried the plight of the Syrian refugees but hailed Syria's neighbors for their generosity. It is a miracle that refugees have been spared the second humanitarian catastrophe after escaping the one inside Syria. And there is only one reason for this, the generosity of the neighboring countries, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey and Iraq, with borders with Syria, have been sheltering an unrelenting flood of Syrian refugees, saving lives and providing protection. They have been generous hosts to their neighbors, and all of them are stretched to their limits. Guterres called on the international community to put in place more robust measures of sharing the burden. Helen Clark, administrator for the United Nations Development Program, agrees that the cost on host communities and countries cannot be borne by them alone. The Syrian crisis is complex because it's both humanitarian and developmental in nature, she warns. Therefore, she argues, it needs a collective response. The Syria crisis, with its great magnitude and scope, requires us all to be more creative and effective in our support of the affected populations, working with national partners, development banks, civil society organizations, and with the private sector too. Ms. Clark warns Syria's refugee crisis could threaten the economies of neighboring and host countries if nothing is done. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. Experts of population, civil society and non-governmental organizations are meeting in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to discuss how to harness the benefits of the population of Africa. Aspects that have been discussed include how to promote an all-round equality amongst the population so that every citizen can benefit. Coletta Wanjohi on that story. Africa has been progressing steadily in the areas of economic and social development. Some of the fastest growing economies in the world are African. In 2012, while global growth declined by 2.7% due to economic crisis, Africa bucked the trend and grew at 5%. 
At the same time, the continent is experiencing mega demographic shifts. The number of people on the continent has increased from 703 million in 1994 to a projected 1.2 billion in 2014. Each year, the continent has reportedly added about 21 million persons to its population. A continental conference on population that has brought together experts from different parts of the continent is discussing how to turn these numbers into social and economic benefits for the continent. The Deputy Executive Secretary of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, Abdallah Hamdok, explains. Why disparities still exist in access to sexual and reproductive health services, especially for young people? Clothing the gender gap remains a major challenge, particularly in areas of women economic empowerment and participation in politics and decision-making. Fertility rates have remained relatively high on the continent, even as significant progress has been made, decreasing the mortality rates and all that. The experts recognize the fact that Africa has the youngest population and will remain so for decades in a rapidly aging world. The median age is currently about 20 compared to a world average of 30. Africa's youth present a potential resource and a great force for economic and political change. This has made accelerated economic growth through realizing the benefits of demographic dividend, a strong possibility for many African nations as the continent continues to strive to lower fertility and child mortality. Even though these demographic changes are shaping Africa's position in the global market for labor, trade and capital, challenges remain on how the continent can address equality in the continent so that all can benefit. The Deputy Executive Director of the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, Anne Birgit, explains. This conference presents a unique opportunity to reflect on the situation in the region and to build on your successes and lessons learned but also to be ambitious, to shape not just the review of the Africa review of the ICPD agenda. The population experts and civil society organizations are striving to give a clear signal of Africa's unique experiences and provide a strong input for the United Nations General Assembly special session on the International Conference on Population and Development Beyond 2014, as well as the post-2015 development agenda. Kuleton Johi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, and the time is 8.41 Central African time. In our next story, Zimbabwe border posts have embraced solar energy to cure the erratic power supply that has affected the entire nation. Daily demand for electricity stands at 2,100 megawatts, although power generation is at 1,100 megawatts. Kariba and Huangwe power stations are failing to meet the demand, leading to power outages that have affected several businesses. Simon Muchema reports. At a time when Zimbabwe's power utility is struggling to generate enough electricity to meet the daily demand, Zimbabwe Revenue Authority has embraced solar energy. The solar energy rollout at Zimbabwe's border posts was initiated late last year to cure the erratic power supply the nation is currently experiencing. Commissioner General of Zimbabwe Revenue Authority Geshom Pasi made the revelations a few days ago at a conference made to award compliant businesses in the capital. 
Percy said the solar energy program would allow most businesses to interact with Zimra without any hindrances. And we have had power challenges, but what we have done now, Nyamapanda has been operating on solar energy since December. Plumtree has been operating on solar energy since January. And we are looking forward to rolling out the program so that virtually all our, our stations, no matter how remote they are, are on solar so that connectivity is improved and we hope the trenching that has been going across the country will also be completed so that we can have seamless transactions. You do your, 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 your bills of entry, you instruct your bank, the bank makes the transfer, transfer goes immediately to Zimra, Zimra sends you a receipt electronically. That's where we are, that's where we, we are going and we will stay there with you and continue to embrace future technological advancements. Over the years, Zimbabwe has been struggling to meet a daily power generation demand of more than 2,100 megawatts due to the closure of several thermal power stations in most major cities. Maintenance neglect or core shortages have been the major causes for part production or no power generations at times. The maximum power generation capacity stands at 1,100 megawatts mainly at Kariba Hydro Power Station and Wange Thermal Power Station. Kariba Hydro Power Station generates 750 megawatts, while East Wange has a power generation capacity of 950 megawatts. However, Zimbabwe is always plunged into darkness, affecting the smooth running of businesses. Border posts were the worst affected as Zimbabwe operates as a hub for most countries in the Southern African region. And we've also taken note that um, improving convenience to the transacting public is key. And we've done that through st uh, efforts of our st staff members as well as uh, use of seamless and cut cutting-edge technology. So we will continue to do that. It has been our cl clarion call within Zimra. In fact, most of us within Zimra see what we do as more of a calling to save the nation than a job. We have a passion for what we do. Sometimes we can be seen as being stubborn, but it's because when it's a calling, you don't look at the clock to say, I put in enough hours for the day. We are here to save and to save you well. The power outages in Zimbabwe have in a way opened up to rampant corruption at the border posts. Of course, this I always repeat, that we will tenaciously fight underhand dealing such as corruption, smuggling, tax evasion and all other acts of economic malfeasance inherent, which inherently may have become part of some people's DNA. But for us, the fight is our DNA and we will win together with you who eradicate uh, corruption. That report by Simon Muchemwa. We now cross over to Wisani Matebula for our economics news.
Morning, Lulu. The U.S. has begun a partial government shutdown for the first time in 17 years, potentially putting up to one million workers on unpaid leave, closing national parks and stalling medical research projects. Federal agencies have been told to cut back services after lawmakers could not break a political stalemate that sparked new questions about the ability of a deeply divided Congress to perform its most basic functions. If Congress can agree to a new funding bill soon, the shutdown could last for days rather than weeks. The U.S. government is under pressure to raise $16.7 trillion before the end of October. Meanwhile, the dollar is wobbling against a basket of major currencies and uh, gave up its gains against the Japanese yen after the U.S. failed to reach a compromise ahead of the deadline for a looming government shutdown. The yen bounced back after an earlier downward blip that came after Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe said he had decided to go ahead with a planned hike in the national sales tax. The Australian dollar also soared after the country's central bank kept interest rates unchanged. The dollar index dropped about 0.2% yesterday. Political and economic relations between South Africa and Senegal are set to receive a new impetus. Uh, President Jacob Zuma is in Senegal on a two-day state visit. This is the first ever state visit by the South African president to the West African nation. Currently, South Africa exports to Senegal are just above $83 million, while Senegal exports goods worth less than 2 million barrels. It is hoped the visit will help to increase the current low levels of trade between the two nations. South African International Relations Minister Mai Senegal is a very, very important ally, both at the political, economic, but also on pan-Africanism. We are here to consolidate our bilateral relations, to consolidate the African agenda. We are here to continue working with Senegal as we engage with issues regional, but also at the multilateral level, defending the African agenda. Meanwhile, South Africa's trade deficit for August has come in higher than expected. It has widened over $2 billion in August, the biggest gap in 17 months, and they're well up on their $1.4 billion in July. Figures released by the South African Revenue Service show that exports dropped by 7.6% between July and August, while imports were down 0.1%. Economists had expected the trade deficit to drop $1.3 billion in August. Economists at South Africa's power utility, Eskom Mandla Mali, says the number is volatile and hard to predict. If you were to use the, the exchange rate, if you've got imports um, um, increasing and exports um, um, declining um, in a fairly weaker exchange rate environment, consequentially that's going to widen your, it's going to widen your, 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 your trade balance um, just on, on swapping or accounting for um, the exchange rate. Angolan state oil company Sonangol plans to hold a bidding this year and next year for licenses to explore for oil onshore in 10 new blocks in the Kwanzaa and Lower Congo basins. Angola, Africa's second biggest oil producer after Nigeria, wants to increase its crude output to 2 million barrels per day in 2015 from around 1.7 million barrels per day now. Most of its crude currently comes from offshore fields. Sonagol in February announced that it will seek bids for 15 blocks, 
10 in the Kwanzaa Basin and 5 in the Lower Congo Basin, both in northern Angola. Oil revenues represent above 95% of Angola's export income and around 45% of its gross domestic product. The African pharmaceutical sector is expected to grow tremendously in the coming years. The opportunity is such that the public-private synergies are key to the development of the industry. These are the conclusions that emerged from the first African pharmaceutical summit last week in Hamamet in Tunisia. With a compound annual growth rate of more than 10%, Africa is the second most dynamic pharmaceutical market after Asian Pacific, with a pharmaceutical spending expected to reach $30 billion by 2016. Co-organized by the African Development Bank and the Africa Health Journal, the African Pharmaceutical Summit drew over 130 participants from around the world. The summit is the first platform to bring together high-level policy makers within the African pharmaceutical industry. Financial indicators, the dollar uh, uh, at uh, 10.8 uh, South African rands at the uh, 8.47 Botswana Pulas and 5.28 Zambian Quatches, also trading at 0.61 British Pound and 0.74 to the Euro. Uh, looking at commodities, platinum $1,411.74, gold $1,333.19 fine ounce, and the brand crude oil trading at $108.02 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you, Wisani. We now cross over to Figle Lingwati for our sports update. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with news from India, cricket news. India's under-19s have won the toss and chosen to fill the first in their round-robin match two against the Coca-Cola South Africa under-19s at Dr. Y.S. Raja Sekara Reddy, VDK Stadium in Visa Katipadna in India. The match is seen as the dress rehearsal before Saturday's final that both teams are expected to take part in. South Africa make three changes to their lineup, starting with the captaincy. Aiden Markham makes a return to the side and also takes the responsibility of captain today with Dayan Galim and Andile Pesluwayo, the other two, to make a comeback. And with the box injuries, Springbok team doctor Craig Roberts says that Springbok center JJ Engelbrecht is the only doubtful starter ahead of this coming weekend's Castle Lager Rugby Championship clash against the All Blacks at Ellis Park. Engelbrecht has a contusion to his squad muscle and will be given until later this week to prove his fitness. And on to football news, Safa. Newly appointed Safa president, Denny Jordan, has conceded that the football body doesn't have a good public image. He's become the sixth Safa president after beating Manja Mazubugo in elections at the weekend. Jordan says his priority is to improve the Safa brand. But I also spoke to the visual aspects of brand Safa. Uh, and so you saw us outside talking about 
the entry point because it is when you drive to Safa House, it must be presenting itself as the headquarters of one of the biggest federations on the, on the African continent and one of the, uh, the only 18 of federations who hosted the World Cup. And therefore, uh, when you drive up, you must already feel uh, that there is a difference. And in Olympic news, the Sochi 2014 Winter Olympic torch was lit in ancient Olympia on the 30th of September, heralding the start of what will be the longest torch relay for any Winter Games, including a trip to space. The Black Sea Resort of Sochi, the first Russian city to stage a Winter Olympics, will receive the flame on October the 5th after a short relay in Greece to kick off 123-day Odyssey, culminating at the opening ceremony on the 7th of February. New International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach addressed the guests on his first official assignment since succeeding Jacques Roger. The flame lit today by the Greek sun takes on this responsibility for a peaceful celebration here and now. The torches will carry it into the Olympic future. Thus, the Olympic torch relay will be a messenger for the Olympic values of excellent friendship and respect without any form of discrimination. That's a spot news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South African President Jacob Zuma begins his state visit to Senegal and Cameroonians await parliamentary election results. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu. Producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is May Way with Extraterrestri. <laughs>
peuple qui vit la vie s'acharne sur ceux qui vivent Quel espoir pour ceux qui atteindront l'autre vie Au secours Au secours Tu vas payer, c'est la sentence Donner l'alarme, alerte rouge SOS Extraterrestre, les nous sont 